Good evening, uh, Rua Church. Uh, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. And we will once, be, uh, once again be looking at Luke chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 1 for the reading. Uh, once you have found that text, I want to invite you to stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. be seated. This is now our third week looking at this particular passage in, in Luke's gospel. And we've been considering a number of things with regards to uh, prayer, uh, given that this is Jesus' explicit instructions on prayer, at least really the first time in Luke's gospel that he instructs explicitly on prayer. And we've, we've observed a couple of things. And when we started the very first week, we just looked at verses one through four, uh, and particularly with, with an eye towards what, what ought our prayers to consist of? What, what ought we to pray for? And at that time, you'll remember, I, I contended, and I, I think uh, that uh, scripture bears this out as well, that when we pray, we're not asking for novel things or things that we're not so sure about. When we pray, we're asking God for things he's already promised to give us. And we, and we even see that language embedded in the Lord's Prayer, that all of the things we petition him for in that prayer are things he's promised for us beforehand, things that he promised us will come to pass. Even things including the new covenant, which he promises to his people. Uh, we pray for the kingdom to come and for God's name to be hallowed upon the earth, all of those being part of that new covenant people. And uh, last week we looked particularly then, okay, we see the content of our prayer. Now what about our, uh, let's say, motivation to pray? What does that look like? And last week we just looked at verses uh, 5 through 10, uh, uh, and particularly at the argument, okay, what are some motivations that Jesus gives us to pray? And uh, at, that, at that time, uh, Jesus really makes the argument really in verses 5 through 8, that the primary reason we ought to pray in this particular set of verses is out of our own desperation, out of our own need. Uh, we pray with a certain shamelessness, with a certain, uh, with a certain uh, abandon, 
because we have such great need that we ought to come to God with a posture of essentially being beggars in, in great need for him. Much like the man comes to his friend in the middle of the night with desperate need. He has bread that he needs and he does not have bread and he's hosting his friend and uh, he has great need. So he goes to his friend and he asks. And it's because of his shameless abandon that the friend will answer his request in the middle of the night. Well then, uh, with that all being said, the verses we have not yet looked at are those last three verses that we just read together. Uh, when Jesus essentially gives us another reason, another motivation for us to pray. And that motivation, uh, maybe we could summarize it by saying, uh, we are motivated to pray uh, because God is a trustworthy gift giver. We're just looking at our motivation to pray, but in, in these few verses, we're looking at essentially the trustworthiness of God to answer our prayers. I might uh, begin uh, in, in our study now by just asking you to pause for a second and think about uh, what is it that consistently would prevent you from praying as you know that you ought to or as you want to pray? Uh, in, in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at prayer, and maybe during that time you found yourself enlivened to pray more. When you go to the Lord in the morning, uh, when you read the Bible, maybe even as you're going throughout your day, you find yourself maybe uh, encouraged to go to the Lord in prayer, or to ask him for things, or to uh, request things of him, or even to glorify him uh, in prayer. Uh, perhaps not, but whatever the case, what, what are the things that consistently prevent you from prayer? Notice in, in this text, Jesus is is giving us essentially advances on reasons or objections we might give to prayer. Uh, we might object to praying because we don't feel that we're all that needy. That was last week. Uh, and one of the reasons we might object to praying, not necessarily overtly, you know, we're good Christians, so we wouldn't necessarily say overtly out loud, uh, we don't really trust God's ability to give us good gifts. But maybe subtly, uh, by means of our own demeanor, our own disposition, or even uh, our own internal thought life, we might contend with God's ability to answer gifts in a worthy manner, and we might say that that prevents us from praying. I don't know what it is for you that would regularly prevent you from praying, but at least in the, in the time being tonight, my goal is to cross that off of your possible objections list, that God is somehow untrustworthy or might not give me gifts that I'm actually asking for. Uh, what, if, what if he actually answers my prayer and that's a scary uh, petition? Well, in this text, we see that Jesus uh, is telling us about God and his willingness to give us gifts and, and essentially his, his goodness in his gift giving. So with that in mind, let's turn with particular attention to uh, really verse 11 and follow the argument. He says, who among you, uh, as a father, uh, when his son would ask him for a fish, would go to his son and instead of a fish, give him a snake? Well, that's a, a strange thing. And, and if we're reading this, this should strike us as, as odd. Uh, why would a good father give his child a poisonous, or I should say venomous, for those of you who are uh, in biological sciences, a venomous thing that could harm or damage his son? Uh, why would he give him something that could harm him instead of the sustenance that he asked for? Right? A fish is a form of sustenance, right? Uh, remember, Jesus gives the bread and the fish, and he divides them among uh, the 5,000 and that miracle when he feeds the crowd. Uh, and then the prayer, we ask for bread, the daily bread that we need. So suppose you go to your father as just a normal child and you ask him for fish, for sustenance, for daily bread. You ask him for something that you need to sustain you. And instead of giving you the thing that you need to sustain you, he gives you something that will cause you damage, that will hurt you, will assail you, will, uh, will be unhelpful and possibly dangerous for you. 
And of course, what we should assume, because he doesn't answer the question, but as we're reading it, we should feel the, the obvious nature of the implied response. No father among you would do such a thing. Even a normal human father would not do something like that to their son because it's outside of the character of the father-son relationship to do something like that, to subvert one's child. So uh, what father among you, if his son asked for a fish, would instead of a fish give him a serpent? And the answer is none. Or if he asks for an egg, another form of sustenance of food, would give him a scorpion, also something that could harm the child. And the obvious answer in that case, again, is none. No father would do such a thing. And then the argument, okay, he's given two examples, then the argument, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the argument is from essentially the human ability to do good, and then an argument from the lesser to the greater about God's capacity to do good. What's interesting in this text is uh, there's so many ways in which Luke has been building the case of what he's concluding with here. Even something small, uh, which you might have picked up on as, as I was reading it or even just now as I read it again, uh, notice the language of the negative examples that he uses. In verse 11 and verse 12, he gives the examples of a serpent and of a scorpion. These are the negative things that a father would not give to their child. And that might draw your mind or draw your attention, or perhaps if you have a study Bible, you notice a cross-reference. Back in chapter 10 of Luke's Gospel, verse 19, the disciples are reflecting on their mission to the world, and Jesus says, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. I've given you the authority, the protection to guard you from things which will assail you. And then here in his prayer uh, teaching, Jesus makes the argument that the father won't even give you those things into your life. Not only has he protected you from them on the front end, but no father would even give his child such things. It's, it's an allusion back to God's promise of authority to his disciples, his protection over them. And now drawing our mind back there with these, these terms, he's essentially arguing, well, God obviously wouldn't do that. God would not give his children things which could hurt them. And he uses these two specific terms, serpent and scorpion, probably to draw our mind back to an example of when he taught his disciples that he's actually protecting them from the power of serpents and scorpions, which otherwise might assail them. He is a providential God who oversees the lives of his children and guards them from things which would otherwise harm them. And notice the specific requests in this example are for daily provision. The father is addressing a request for a fish or a request for an egg, daily sustenance items. So which of you, if you asked for daily bread from God, would instead of daily bread, what you actually need to sustain in the day, would receive something which would be harmful to you and would undermine God's purposes for you? Consider that. Would God, if you asked him in the, in the disciples' prayer, if you asked him, give us today the, de the, the bread that we need, the sustenance which we need, would God turn around and give you something evil instead of the good thing which you have asked of him? Okay. If a human father wouldn't do that, why would God? The argument, if you who are evil know how to do such a thing, how much more would God be able to do even greater than a human father? Now we might consider this and say, well, how is it that Jesus gives a character assessment on the human condition and says that we are evil people, okay? Jesus says that a human father won't give, let's say, evil gifts to his children, 
So why does Jesus, when he's making his argument, throw something in there like, if you who are evil, it's a character assessment of the human condition. How is it that evil people are able to give good gifts? What, what is the mechanism which causes evil people to still be able to do good in this world? Consider with me for a moment what causes humans to be evil. In, in scripture, we, we're taught that evil doesn't come from God. God is not the, uh, he's not the cause of evil. Evil is a result of the fall. God creates this world good. He creates it sinless, perfection. And as a result of humans' choice to rebel against God, evil and brokenness and sin enters into the world and causes all kinds of devastation across mankind. But it doesn't just cause a devastation on nature and creation. It also causes a devastation on the human nature, a devastation which is felt generationally, so that all who are children of Adam are, in some sense, victim to the sin of Adam, that we are uh, evil by our very nature, by our very birth. Now, this does not mean that we are as evil as we could possibly be in this world. Scripture tells us several times that humans are able to do good things to other people, right? We have examples of wicked kings seeking the good of their own people for the benefit of that population. Even Pharaoh, when he's oppressing the Israelites, is doing so for the benefit of the Egyptians. And even Pharaoh is able to seek good in some sense for his own people. So even Pharaoh is not given over to an ultimate evil, an ultimate kind of rebellion and abandon. So what causes that restraint of evil in the human condition? Well, if you trace the source, Scripture teaches us that the reason humans aren't as evil as we possibly could be, the thing that prevents us from going that far, is nothing less than the hand of God, which restrains the evil of the human heart. God, in his common grace, prevents us from being as wicked as the fall would have otherwise caused us to be. And you might say, well, what, what would be examples of that in the text of Scripture? Well, when, when you play out sin, for example, in the opening chapter of Romans, you see that God is giving people over to their own desires. And that actually causes humans to get worse and worse and worse and worse into a cycle of sin. Okay, if that's the case, if God gives people over to what they want and that causes them to get worse and worse and worse, what prevented them from being as bad as they otherwise could have been? God not giving them the desires that they otherwise would have evilly wanted. God restrains the sin of humanity by means of his common grace. Even Pharaoh, when he is rebelling against God, is said to harden his own heart, and God essentially releases his hand of restraint on Pharaoh and allows Pharaoh to go deeper and deeper into his rebellion. But before that, the thing that was stopping Pharaoh from being rebellious against God was not Pharaoh's own benevolence, it was God's restraint on Pharaoh's rule. Why am I going into all this detail on the nature of evil and what causes us to not sin? If Jesus' assessment here is true of the human condition, that humans are evil and we're still able to give good gifts to our own children, what causes us to be able to give those good gifts to our children? It's the grace of God on a human father to be able to give good gifts to their child. Okay, if that's the case, how much more God, who struggles not at all with evil in any capacity, would be able to give of his benevolent grace, not of his common grace, of his benevolent grace, to his own children greater gifts? The restraint of evil that God works out in his common grace is a small taste, a small example, of what it is to see God giving gifts to his own children of his abundant grace, which is not restrained in any way by human sin or human 
depravity. Now here's the example that we see in the text. Consider the Holy Spirit, God's good gift that he gives to his children. This is an example for us of God being able to answer prayer, answer our requests. And now think about this. How does the Holy Spirit at all fit into the picture of this argument for prayer? Well, to see the Holy Spirit fit in, you have to go back to the requests that we're asking for. And you notice when we ask, we ask or when Jesus teaches us to pray, verse 2, he says, we go, Father, uh, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who are indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. How does God in this world accomplish all of those things by means of his Holy Spirit in our lives to cause us to hallow his name, to cause us to desire his kingdom and seek his kingdom, to cause us to be sustained by his common grace. He gives us his Holy Spirit to actually meet all the requests that we are here asking for. The Holy Spirit, in some sense, is a picture for us of how God will answer the requests here which we ask for. You might think, uh, remember last week we talked at length about God actually answering prayers perfectly. He, in fact, does answer every prayer. And, and I told you at that time to consider the fact that we often rebel against that because we think of our own experience or the experience of how otherwise we've asked God for an answer. And we think about how that response might have been insufficient or not up to what we wanted in terms of response. And then at that time, I restrained from an example, but I want to give it this week. Paul gives us an example of what it looks like to have a prayer answered by the Holy Spirit uh, for something that he wasn't really asking for from the Holy Spirit. Paul gives us the example of the thorn which he has in his flesh, his weakness, and he asks God to take away the weakness. And instead of taking away the weakness, God gives him abundant grace to be able to deal with the weakness of his flesh. Well, how does that abundant grace get into Paul's life if not by the Holy Spirit living in Paul and providing with Paul the grace and patience and endurance to persist despite the affliction? So Paul asks God for an answer to prayer. Maybe he has in mind the actual removal of the thorn and God answers the prayer by giving him the Holy Spirit in additional measure and additional capacity so that Paul can endure for longer. So the Holy Spirit is one of the ways God answers the requests of those who ask him. God gives good gifts to his children. What other ways does the Holy Spirit answer the requests here in the Lord's Prayer? Well, we think of just the first two petitions, uh, just in verse 2, that God's name would be made holy in this world, that it would be hallowed, and that his kingdom would come in this world. How does God's name get more and more uh, honored and adored in this world? How does that happen? One of the ways it can happen is by us personally growing in grace, growing in our own capacity to be obedient to God's word, to love his name, to restrain us from the sin which would otherwise blaspheme the name of God. How does that happen in our individual lives, if not by the Holy Spirit causing us to grow in grace? But there's another way in which God's name can be hallowed, and that is by additional people in this world also loving God's law, loving his name, in the same way that Christians who are born again love God's law and love his name. Well, how does that happen if not the Holy Spirit working in the lives and hearts of people to turn them from their rebellion and into obedience to God's law? So the Holy Spirit answers the first request of the Lord's Prayer by us individually growing in sanctification and also other people becoming converted to the faith of Christ. 
So it is with the growth of the kingdom of God. If the Holy Spirit causes us individually to be more obedient to God's law, more obedient to his word, more loving of his nature, his kingdom will be more tangibly felt in this world. Okay, then how does, how does that work outside of us individually? Well, if the church at large adds members to its numbers and grows in terms of size and capacity, it will have more resources, more ability, more capacity to make the kingdom felt in this world. And this is caused by the growth of the Holy Spirit to turn otherwise sinful people from their rebellion into God's marvelous grace and therefore to expand the effect of the kingdom of God in this world. Consider even how this prayer is answered on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. If the disciples pray regularly for God's name to be hallowed and for his kingdom to come, imagine the answer that Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit is poured out and for the new covenant to be ratified by people prophesying, the Holy Spirit being poured out in strength and in might, for people to speak in tongues, think about the way in which the kingdom of God grew in the hearts of even just Jewish converts in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost by means of the direct answer of the Holy Spirit enacting the things which are asked for in the disciples' prayer. The Holy Spirit is then, as you see, a sufficient and abundant answer to many of the requests given here. So. Uh, far from being a, an odd endnote in verse 13, the Holy Spirit is actually a, a totally tight logical sequence given to us by Luke. Now, you might be hearing all these things and you might be saying, yes, yes, yes. Well, all of this is good, but my own experience still tells me that there are things which I've asked God for, which I'm not so sure that he is trustworthy in answering. And you might not say it that exact way, but perhaps that is uh, something which you otherwise worry about. God's ability to answer your requests in a way which you would say either meets or exceeds your expectations for that request to be met. Now at this point in time, I think it's a wise thing for us as a church, as a body of believers, to take inventory of where we are at, let's say, in our own lives. Generally speaking, we are a young church, which means we have a very small, limited amount of life experience to even draw from. And so not only is experience dangerous uh, as a source of truth for an 80-year-old who's lived a whole lot of life, but experience is even more dangerous for someone who's young who has a smaller sample size to draw from. If you're at all in the world of statistics, uh, you would know a smaller sample size is more prone to errant readings, either on one side or the other. So if we're a young church and we're drawing on our experience and we're going to use our experience to contend with the promises of Scripture, uh, we might want to first take pause and say, well, we're only less than 30 for most of us. We don't have enough life experience to even begin to weigh against God's goodness. Even collectively, we don't have enough experience. Our experience is an unreliable way of dictating God's truth, is my point. But more than that, we would have to not only reject our, our own experience to believe this text, or sorry, we would not only have to reject, let's say, the plain teaching of the text here, and put our experience over that in order to reject this teaching. But one of the other ways we, we could possibly reject this teaching is by reading this text out, outside of its own context. And its own context is the entire Gospel of Luke. And Luke has not, in the last 13 verses, been building us a case for how is it that God answers his people with good answers to prayer. He's actually been building that for 11 chapters in his Gospel. He's been giving us tons of examples of how God answers the requests of his people in ways that not only meet, but abundantly exceed their expectations for those requests. 
So I want to invite you to take a, a brief survey. We're not going to look at every chapter or every instance, just a survey, a sprinkling of them. But I want to start at the beginning of Luke's gospel where he first shows us these things. And you might find it helpful to turn there. We're not going to read these texts, just reference them. Luke chapter 1 and uh, the encounter that Zechariah uh, has with the angel. In Luke chapter 1, uh, you find uh, Luke introducing his gospel, and the very first character we're introduced to is Zechariah, who goes to the temple, and he goes to the temple in prayer. And his job at that time is to intercede for the people of God to make petition and to make request and to offer the sacrifices. And then an angel appears to Zechariah, and the angel says these words to him in verse 13. He says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Now think about this. Zechariah's prayer is for what? For Israel to be uh, a nation, a people that is reserved unto God. Possibly it's a personal prayer that he had prayed for some time ago for his own wife to have a child. Now think about if either of those petitions are the petition that Zechariah asked for. The angel tells Zechariah that his prayer has been heard, his prayer is being answered in the fact that Elizabeth is going to have a child and the child will be named John. And then if you just scan the rest of those verses and see all of what is going to be attributed to John, think about how Zechariah's meager prayer of either Israel being sustained or his wife bearing a son would be massively exceeded in answer by just John's birth and his life. John is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He's going to turn the hearts of Israel back to their king. He's going to be a, a, a child for Elizabeth. He's going to meet every request that Zechariah would have possibly asked for and then punt those out of the park, being called the greatest man born among women, John the Baptist. Now, Zechariah doesn't ask for John the Baptist to be all these things. He's, he's asking for probably something human, a very, a very earthly, tame prayer request. And look at how God answers it. By giving Zechariah the answer of the prayer in not only a meeting expectations kind of capacity, but a beyond exceeding expectations capacity. Consider Anna in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 37. There's this widowed woman, old in years, who has been looking to the Lord in prayer day and night in the temple. And how does God answer her prayer? This is chapter 2, verse 37, where it says she's praying day and night. How is her prayer answered? Well, she gets to see Christ. She gets to see Jesus as an answer to her prayer. Simeon asks for a sign. He sees Jesus and he says, I, I'm ready to die now, Lord. Well, Anna, the prophetess, has been praying day and night in the temple for something. And her prayer is answered and met by the Christ himself being seen by her. Now you think about all the ways in which Anna might have expected her prayer to be answered. Possibly by Rome diminishing in power and Jerusalem possibly standing on its own two legs a little more. What would be the hope of a Jewish person who's asking for the Lord for deliverance of some kind? And consider how the Messiah is probably not even on her radar as a possible answer. And even if he is, maybe even not in her lifetime. Maybe she's even just looking for a small, vestige of the promise to still exist for Israel. And here she gets the answer to the promise, which was prophesied by all the prophets of old. Anna's prayer is met not in some small capacity, but in a marvelously abundant capacity. Consider Luke chapter 4, verse 19. 
Luke's been building this case of how God answers prayer abundantly. And Luke chapter 4, verse 19 tells us about the hope of the Jewish people, as recorded by the prophet Isaiah, is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But you remember in the prophet Isaiah, there's this dual promise at that time that it's not only proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, but also to bring judgment on God's people. Now think about how God actually answers the prayer of the hope of the Jewish people is not by bringing both salvation and judgment uh, together. He actually answers it in in a much more wonderful way. First, by providing salvation and then a long period of time where salvation can be had by not only the Jewish people, but also the Gentile people. And then at some point in the future, he'll bring judgment. But if you're a Jewish person, you're praying for God to answer the prayer of Isaiah 61. You're not praying for this kind of specific way in which he does answer the prayer. You're praying probably for both things to happen simultaneously. But how much more wonderful is the answer that God actually gives to the prophecy where he allows for a more abundant, a more glorious, a more long-lasting and inclusive salvation, and then at some point in future to bring the judgment. My point is the Jewish people are probably praying for both these things to occur together, thinking that this would be the best case scenario, and God brings about a beyond abundantly better case scenario, where for 2,000 years he offers repentance and conversion and the whole world to feel the glory of his gospel going forth. The Jewish people's hope then in Luke 4.19 is answered in a, in a better way than what they could have possibly expected it to be answered in. Consider the paralyzed man in Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, you meet the man who is, uh, Jesus is preaching, his friends take him on a mat, and they lower him through the roof, a very common story in the synoptic gospels, very well known. What what are they showing up for to ask Jesus for? They're showing up to get their friend healed bodily from his paralysis. And what does Jesus do? Chapter 5 and verse 20, Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven. That's not even in their prayer request. That's not even in their prayer vocabulary, right? They're going to Jesus for a bodily healing, and what does he do? He forgives the guy's sins, and then in verse 25, he also heals him bodily. Now, their request is for bodily healing, and look at how much bigger and grander and better the answered prayer from Jesus is to this man. He's a trustworthy source of answered prayer. Luke's building this case, but he doesn't stop there. Luke chapter 7, and particularly in verse 48, you'll see that same exact line. Where you see a woman, a sinful woman, go to Jesus in a Pharisee's house. And what does Jesus say to that woman? Jesus says to her in verse 48, your sins are forgiven you. Now, if you consider all of the things that that woman expected to happen by going to Jesus and worshiping him in a Pharisee's house, probably a break-even request would that she wouldn't be kicked out or stoned for her actions. That she would just be received by Jesus and that he would receive the worship. But what happens instead? She goes to Jesus and she receives a full pardon for her sins. The request that she asked and the response that Jesus gave. A far more abundant answer to the request which she made known to him. But this is not the pinnacle of examples. That one is yet to come in one more. Luke chapter 8 and Jairus and his daughter. In Luke chapter 8, the story of Jairus' daughter, uh, I think, starts in verse 40 or 42 where uh, 
Jairus is, is going to Jesus and he, he makes a request of him. He essentially says, Jesus, come with me. And in verse 42, he tells us the reason he's asking Jesus to come with him is because my only daughter is on the brink of death. She's on the verge of dying. Some of your translations will say she is, she is dying. That's why I'm asking you for help. So this is the request that Jairus comes with. He expects Jesus to be able to resuscitate his daughter from the brink of death and to bring her back. But notice how Jairus' request is then intensified in verse 49. In verse 49, you see a messenger from his household came to them and says to him, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. So Jairus' request is for his daughter at the brink of death to be brought back. And then what we come to know in verse 49 is the daughter has actually passed away in the time of the travels. Now, what does Jairus do? He tries to dismiss Jesus and essentially send him back on his way, not wanting to bother him anymore. He, he's asked for something, and that ask has now seemingly gone unanswered. And he didn't ask for him to bring her back from the dead. He just asked for him to heal her from the brink of death. But look at what happens in verse 54 and in verse 56. You see Jesus speak to the girl and tell her to arise. And then in verse 56, you'll see the parents of uh, Jairus' daughter, Jairus and his wife, are amazed by what they see in the answered prayer. Here's my point. Luke is teaching us about prayer concretely in Luke chapter 11 and giving us a very tight set of verses, verse 11, 12, and 13, to tell us that God is a trustworthy person to go to in prayer because he is a good giver of gifts. But he hasn't just given us that as a first-time introduction to the concept that God is a good giver of gifts. He's actually built his gospel around the idea that God is able to abundantly answer any request brought to him in a way that often exceeds the expectation of the one who asks. Now, if you want to take your 20, 25, 30 years of experience of life and contend with the five or six examples we've just looked at in Luke's gospel. And that's not even uh, through the first half of Luke's gospel. We still have uh, the back half of the gospel to get through where he's going to give us example after example of people going to Jesus and receiving healing for the request. And we haven't even looked at all of the examples through the first 11 chapters. We've just looked at a sprinkling of them. We've ignored the leper. We've ignored all kinds of examples of Jesus answering the requests of people and abundantly exceeding the expectations that they have. The point is that Jesus is able to do this. God has kind of the tendency to do this. And Luke is building the case for his reader that by the time you get to Luke chapter 11, verses uh, 11 through 13, you shouldn't say, well, what proof do I have that this is the case? You should say, oh yes, this reminds me of all the other times that he taught me and showed me by means of example after example, that this is right in God's nature to do this kind of thing. So what then would prevent you from prayer if you know that it is not only within your own desperate need to have prayers answered, but also it is within God's own character and his own, can we say, tendency to do this kind of thing, which is to answer prayers for his people. Now, you might think of all these examples and you might say, yes, a particular time, a particular place. What about for today? What confidence could I have that if I go to the Lord in prayer, you know, Jesus isn't roaming the earth anymore. What should I expect of him? Uh, what, what kind of responses can I anticipate for him to answer with regards to my prayers? Well, there's all kinds of 
examples of this, and we could look at church history, or we could even look at modern-day examples of people going to the Lord in prayer and having their prayers answered. But I think the best thing for us to do would be to consider not other examples, of which I think Luke provides plenty, but simply an argument from God's character and his tendency to treat his own son. If you consider the very first address in the Lord's Prayer, we're to address God as Father. We've talked at length about all the implications of that kind of thing. But if you consider that petition, the Father petition, as a first indication of how we approach God in prayer, we can consider Christ as a chief example of how God tends to answer prayers for his children. Consider Christ, who while we were far off, brought us into the fold of God, adopted us as sons and daughters. Well, how does Christ do that kind of thing? He has to go and die on a cross in our place. He has to take on our sin on him, and he has to take on the wrath of God, which is the fit punishment for our sin, and he has to go to the cross, die, and then he's to be resurrected. Now, if you look at Christ as an example of how God tends to treat his children, consider how God doesn't just abandon Christ to do those things on his own. God, the Father, gives to Christ the abundant filling of the Spirit to actually go to Golgotha. Christ is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, petitioning him saying, Lord, let this cup pass from me. And the Father gives him the abundant grace, the abundant, sufficient answer to his prayer, which is to give him the Holy Spirit in full measure so that he can actually go to the cross, die instead of us. But not only that, he doesn't leave him dead. He actually resurrects Christ from the grave. He, in both those instances, gives us an example of how he treats his children, which is that he does not abandon them to their own, and he does not leave them wherever they're at. Jesus, being an obedient son, is resurrected by God. He's not abandoned in the grave. Okay, well, you might say, well, that's great, but I'm not a super obedient child of God. Well, it's good because it's not your obedience that dictates God's ability to answer or desire to answer your requests. What does God see when he looks at you? He doesn't see you. He sees Christ and his work. So if Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of how God views his desire to answer and vindicate the work of Christ, his resurrection is a, is a picture of that for us, well, who are we to say that he won't be aptly desiring to do that kind of thing today? Because when he looks at you as a child of God, he sees his son. Well, how does he answer Christ's requests? How does he answer Christ's needs? Without any kind of restraint, grace upon grace upon grace, so that Christ can live the life that he needed to live, die in a perfect act of obedience, and be vindicated in the grave and resurrected on high. So when God looks at us and he sees Christ, and we see Christ as an example of how God answers the requests, but well, we have a whole New Testament of examples of how God will deal with us in prayer when we go to him and ask him. Now here's, here's where we get caught in all kinds of ruts. James is, is more uh, uh, explanatory of, let's say, the negative kinds of prayer that you can engage in. James tells us about uh, asking for God in prayer for things and not receiving because we ask from the, from the lusts of our heart. What guards us against asking wrongly of God for things? Well, the Lord's Prayer does. The, the, the promises that God gives us and asking for those things guard us from asking wrongly. 
Well, that's true in part, but there are ways in which we can ask God for these things in an idolatrous kind of fashion. Perhaps, for example, we ask God for the Holy Spirit and for abundant measure of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but not so that we can, well, not so that we can grow in holiness or present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Maybe we do that because we want people to look at us and think more highly of us. We want the Holy Spirit so that other Christians that we know would, would desire to be like we are. That would be a sinful way to ask for God for the Holy Spirit. So what safeguards us from, from this? Well, we don't ask God only for verse 13 for the Holy Spirit. We ask God for verse 13 in context of the whole New Testament, which tells us when we ask for the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is to accomplish certain things in our lives, namely to glorify God, to sanctify us in grace, and to purge our evil, which exists in our fleshly bodies. So when we ask God for the Holy Spirit, we ask that in the context of the rest of the New Testament, which teaches us what the Holy Spirit does and how he operates. We don't ask for the Holy Spirit so that we can do showy things to other Christians. We ask for the Holy Spirit so that we can grow in grace and in the likeness and conformity to the image of Christ. Well, what about uh, God's kingdom coming? What if we pray to that in an idolatrous way? We, we put ourselves somehow in the middle of that prayer and we say, but only God if it's through me or my church or my mission. I would love for you to answer this prayer request, but not at the church down the street or not in some other community in America or not at some other part of the world. Only if you answer the request in my neck of the woods through me or my people would I be satisfied with that request. Well, that would be an idolatrous way to ask for the petition for the kingdom to come. We don't control how the kingdom comes or how that request gets answered. We are told to faithfully pray that it would happen and to trust God's abundant testimony of goodness that he will answer it in a way that is actually fitting for the benevolence of his people worldwide. Because the church doesn't just exist here. The church doesn't just exist in Indianapolis. The church doesn't just exist in the West. The church is a global testimony to the kingdom of God. So when you pray this prayer, Lord, your kingdom come, and you don't see a change tomorrow or next week, that could be because, well, this is being answered by means of your prayer in Africa somewhere to prevent Christians from being expunged, and so the testimony of the gospel can continue to persist. But you have no idea. So don't pray these prayers in an idolatrous fashion, which puts you in the middle of how God could possibly answer it, but you pray it with a, a corporate body in mind. We've talked about this several times. The prayer itself tells us that this is not an individual prayer. So it's not answered only on an individual level. It's answered on a corporate level. He is our Father. He gives us the bread. He forgives our sins. We are the ones who forgive others. It's a, it's a corporate body identity that we are a part of when we pray. So could not God answer the prayers in a corporate body kind of way and in a way that we should be abundantly pleased with, even if we know that it's not through us or in our area of the world? We should be rejoicing in all the ways God can answer these prayers, even if that doesn't mean that we are the personal beneficiaries of these things. The sinful way would be to only be happy if it happens in our time. Consider Hezekiah. He's a king in the Old Testament. He's uh, chiefly indicted by God for the fact that God tells him there will be peace in his time, but when he dies, his children will face the wrath of God for his own and the apostasy of other kings in the nation. And Hezekiah concludes, great, peace in my time. I'm not so worried about other people in other times. And that would be a, a sinful way to look at God's providence, to conclude if it's peace for me and not for other people who are in the covenant, well, then I'm, I'm going to be satisfied because it's good for me. 
We need to have a, an outside kind of mentality where we're happy with God to answer the requests, even if it means no peace in our time, but peace for generations beyond us or for nations beyond us. In the Western church, because we're so individualistic, we hardly ever think about God's answering prayers beyond us and our own families or our own immediate networks. And we would be far more impressed and far more appreciative of the way God answers prayers if we looked throughout the whole church for answers to prayers that we ask God for. But I would extend that to say that if you look throughout church history for how God answers prayers, and you look not at your own tradition, but you look at also other traditions, you look at the Wesleyan tradition and John Wesley and the way he was worked by God for the glory of the gospel. And you cannot consider that George Whitfield would have prayed for John Wesley for the expansion of the kingdom and that their mutual prayers could be met not only through them and their ministry, but also through God's work in the other's life to expand the kingdom and expand the mission. Remember, Jesus has given us an example through Luke's gospel of a time where his disciples go and they are contending with other people who cast out demons, but they're not part of their own group. And Jesus essentially says, the whole world's against you. Why don't you just be happy that the kingdom of God is expanding, even if it's not through your neck of the woods? And here we see that Luke has been building into the fiber of his gospel a testimony to how we can expect God to answer prayers. Not just through us individually, but through the church corporately. Not just in our lifetime, but for generations even to come. Not only for our Western church, but also through the global church. And not only through removing the things that we ask him to remove, but through providing grace so that we can endure the things which we're asking him to remove. There are so many ways in which God is not only capable, but willing and abundantly able to answer prayers that we ask of him. And yet we, in our own experience and in our own short-sightedness, would come to God and challenge him by saying that he hasn't answered this, that, or the other prayer. And we would conclude, well then, why pray? And here's what Jesus is getting at in these 13 verses. These are not sufficient excuses to not pray. There is more reason to pray than otherwise incoherent objections to not praying. And so if you want to be an obedient disciple, what do you do? Well, you pray. Because to be a disciple is to admit that it has to be bigger than just you because you're told to go make other disciples. So you know you need at least more than just you. Well, you know that uh, 2,000 years of church history would tell us we need more than just not only you, but the 10 people around you. You need a whole nation, a whole armada of Christians who are going forth and bringing the gospel. Well, how do you expect that to happen? You can't even disciple that many people in your own lifetime. So how do you begin to go about that work, if not through prayer as an intercessor to ask God for his spirit to bring about the gospel of his world? We consider the goodness of God's giving of gifts. And to maybe conclude on a, a personal example for some of you, uh, consider uh, if you're a nurse to a patient. I know a lot of you are nurses or in the healthcare field. Consider if you're a nurse to a patient and the patient asks you for something, pain relief, medication, they're in pain so they, they need help, they ask you to answer their request. Now as a, as a normal nurse, if you're just abundantly uh, average at your job, you would meet that request sufficiently. You would give the person an, uh, exactly what they need for their pain. Now that person might not agree with you that you're doing all that you can to answer their request, but you're doing your own, uh, you're, you're meeting the capacity that you have to address this person's pain. 
And often there's all these factors behind the scenes that a patient doesn't consider, that a nurse has to consider for why they don't answer the request in a very narrow sense that the patient is asking for. There might be health concerns that are on the line that you can't give them this medication that they requested because, well, there's other medications that would conflict with that, so you give them this other medication. And they might look at you and say, well, you're not answering my request because I asked for this one specific, very narrow thing. And since you didn't give it to me as much as I wanted when I wanted, you're somehow a poor nurse and not good at your job. And you would say, because you're a well-trained nurse, well, I did not only answer your request, but I answered it better than you asked it for. Because I actually know what you, what you need and what you don't need better than you do. Now you're a nurse, <laughs> you're a nurse, and you're considering just you and the patient's relationship, and now consider the fact that if you step back, you can admit that even as a good nurse, you have a finite knowledge and understanding with this patient and their history. And even as the best nurse, you only have at your disposal the tools of modern medicine. You don't have an infinite capacity to answer requests. But if as a good nurse, you can have reasons behind the patient's understanding for why you don't meet the request in a narrow way that they are expecting, how much more could God have reasons beyond our understanding, beyond our scope of ability to reason and comprehend, to answer requests in different ways than we expect him to? God is not only beyond us, he's above us and below us and uh, infinitely past us. He's more wise than we are. He's more reasonable than we are. He's more good than we are. If all these things of God are true, well, who are we to ask God any different? We go to the Lord in prayer to ask him for things he's told us to ask for, to request things he's promised to give us, and to do so with a posture knowing that he's willing to give these things. These are all the safeguards to prayer. Imagine if you could pray and God would just do whatever you asked for. That'd be a dangerous way to live in this world. Imagine if you're a nurse and you just give your patient whatever they ask for. That would be a dangerous hospital go to go to if you're a patient because you don't always know what you need or know how much you need of it. Now, we as Christians are much like that in our relationship to God. We don't often know what we need, how we need it, how much we need. But we ask God with all the safeguards in place that God's good, he's loving, he gives good gifts. He can answer our prayers not only in how we ask, but in ways beyond our understanding of how we have asked. Here's the conclusion. He's a trustworthy God that you can take anything you need, any request that you have, and you can bring it to him. And you don't need to check and say, is this a good thing to ask of God or a bad thing to ask of God? He'll hear the request, and he in his infinite wisdom can actually sift through those things and answer any request, however is fitting in his wisdom. You don't actually have to check yourself and say, well, if I ask this and he answers it, will that cause a catastrophic thing over here? You don't have to do that because he's, he's wise. He's doing all those things. You can just go to him and ask for a daily need, a regular necessity, a, just a, a regular grace, and you can essentially entrust the rest of it to him because you're in his good hands. You're in his good care. This is the way that God teaches us to trust him in prayer. Now, Luke is certainly not done with his arguments on prayer. He's going to continue to elucidate the beauty and the expansiveness of prayer. But for now, he kind of comes to a conclusion here by essentially telling us to consider, before he moves on to the rest of his teaching, to consider the fact that our Heavenly Father is so much more than earthly fathers. Our Heavenly Father is so much more than disturbed or bothered friends. He's so much more than all of these examples he's given in the text. He's a good God beyond us who is willing to answer our requests. And if that can't motivate you to pray, 
There's going to be very few things that can. Would you join me in prayer? Father, you have given us all that we could ask for, all that we could want. Every prayer that has been uttered from our lips, you have heard and you have addressed and you have safeguarded in your hands and you have commissioned to your angels and you have uh, worked about the answers to those things in ways that are often mysterious to us, in ways that are often hidden to us. But Lord, that doesn't mean it's not happening. And we submit to you that even in our finite understanding, we are often tempted to challenge that assessment. We're often tempted to put our own experience uh, up against the truth and promises of your word. Uh, we are often tempted in our practice to cease from prayer or to not be as quick to prayer because we're not so sure if you're a trustworthy God, whether we'll admit it or not. But Lord, we pray for your grace, for your spirit, to cross those excuses off of our list. That you would allow us to be a people that seeks you in prayer, that seeks your face, that longs to fellowship with you in prayer, and that you would cause us to be a people that is on our knees regularly. That we would be a people that seeks you regularly. That we would be a people who trusts you with confidence to answer our requests. Lord, we know that you are more than capable and we know that we are the ones who are often slow and, and dim when it comes to these things. Would you give us grace beyond our understanding, more than we probably think that we need, to go to you in prayer so that we can fulfill all that is demanded of our discipleship. We submit this to you knowing you hear us even now and trusting that you will answer this petition in ways that far exceed our expectations. We pray this in your name. Amen.